I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go of strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram. Is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I am a philosopher, apparently movie enthusiast. I need to add this yeah, to my, my bio. And what? Enneagram theorist in Greeley, Colorado. And with me is TJ Wilson. Businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram Ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We are in a deep dive into great movie villains using the Enneagram. Yeah. We're going to talk about one of my favorite it's, villains today. It's one of the all-time favorites. Might be a bank robber. Not bank robber. Uh, what was this? He's a robber. He's a robber. He's a heist uh, initiator. Sure. I wanted to say bank robber because... We need to talk about heist movies. Okay. Hey, hey, TJ Wilson. Yeah. You, you got a favorite heist movie? So that's a really hard question for me to answer because I really like the newer version of The Italian Job, but I wouldn't say oh. that it's a great heist movie. Sure. Uh, Snatch is Love Snatch. hysterical and amazing. But honestly, I probably, if I had to choose my favorite movie that's like really, it's this is a heist movie, I would probably say Avengers Endgame. <laughs> it's time heist. It's a time heist. In Avengers Endgame. As, as anyone who has listened to our Avengers deep dive will know, we are just fanboys, just full out. Yeah, on this. it's true. Um, one of my great movie viewing experiences was watching Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for like the 28th time, mm -hmm. but for the first time with Beckett, with my youngest mm, son. Sure. Beckett thought it was the dumbest movie he had ever seen. <laughs> he watched, he was like, this is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Just All the jokes, he's getting it, you know, and he's like, he's, he's staying with the movie kind of to honor me, but he's ready right. to go. Sure. And then the turn happens, yeah. and he's behind me, and he lost his mind, <laughs> and he did not see this coming. And he's great. He's a five, so he's an observer, mm -hmm. and he didn't see mm -hmm. it coming. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it caught him off guard made it that much better. <laughs> That's always <laughs> Just, a pretty good deal. Yeah. And then for like the next month, that was the best movie he had ever seen. Sure. Perfect. Which has been... <laughs> Which he traded up recently for 1917. Okay, that was that was also what a fantastic movie going experience. Uh, anyway, perfect. Dirty rotten scoundrels. Yeah. If you were to rob anything, do you have fantasies like this? I have. I have something in my head. I yeah. have my. This is how I would. I would rob something. What, sure. If you're well, gonna I, rob something. So I've I've been in positions enough positions in like stores and and retails and stuff where. 
like it it's part part of my job to figure out like what our vulnerable vulnerable places and like to th- like I think in that way. Mm-hmm. So I do go through this sort of checklist whenever I spend a significant amount of time in a place like like where are the cameras, <laughs> where are the exits, like how if somebody were to do this, how would they do it? And I can't help but wonder like why doesn't this happen more often and why are other criminals so dumb? <laughs> you know? So I think you about would, that a lot. I could see you being a fantastic bank robber for exactly those reasons. You're you're like the person that the FBI hires because you know the tech. Right. And you know how the tech could be breached. Yeah. And so we want you right. because you're exactly the sort of person who would have... If you wanted to commit yourself to a life of crime, you could go down that path for a while yeah. and then turn yourself in and say, I want to really work for the FBI. Or just Dexter it. Setting up stuff. <laughs> Dexter it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to talk about the Dexter element to the character that we're actually uh, coming at. There's a Dexter okay. moment okay. in our character. He's cool. robbing something, and he gives a little speech about why this is morally justifiable. Sure. I've, I caught this on the fifth watching of this this week i watched oh, this five nice. times i went yeah, through this it's easy to do five yeah. times um this was the second time that my wife had ever seen it oh really and she Kay. may never watch it again <laughs> <laughs> well, because uh too much profanity no she just doesn't care <laughs> at all that's Wanna... this is exactly right yeah. this isn't this is exactly the wrong movie yeah for for a high school art teacher yep. maybe Yep. I don't know. If you're a high school art teacher and I'm wrong, you should let me know after. after I'm sure there are some high school art teachers that. They really dig it. They really dig it, but (laughs) it's just not her jam. I have this. I've pitched this to Beckett. If we ever, if I ever write a novel, this is my novel. And so I'm just going to spoil it here for the rest of you. No, but I do want to do heist novels of two. I want to do brothers. I love brotherhood stories, which you know. Yeah. Um, but I want brothers who consistently are dressing up and robbing banks. Yeah. And my and my opening scene is in Sturgis. And all of the the motorcyclists have come to Sturgis and you know they've bombarded that city. Yeah. For the Sturgis rally and you dress up, you know, you get your brothers, they dress up like bikers. They <laughs> they go into Wells Fargo has their headquarters in Sturgis. Oh, sure. So I'm I'm sure there's something we could rob that would be fun. And the Sturgis Bike Festival is the perfect time to... Is that what they call it? The Sturgis Bike Festival? I don't know what it is. Is it Bike Week? Like Shark Week? (laughs) I don't know what this is. Let's just say it is. All right. And (laughs) all the people who have actually gone are turning us off. Don't be mad at us. Dress up like a biker, go rob your stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, just walk out into the street vanish disappear into the crowd yeah of course easy because so why would you not plan ahead that way so the question is where do lots and lots of people suddenly show up all dressed the same and i'm just like hitting banks everywhere so you know we're going to mardi gras and it's super bowl week somewhere and i'm putting on my broncos jersey and it's easy perfect all you gotta do it's not like quick change where you gotta get out of the bank and you're still dressed up like a clown Right. (laughs) Quick change. (laughs) Oh, I didn't think about quick change. (laughs) Kelly Cook is banging her head against a table that I didn't say quick change for my heist movie. That's actually our movie. Sure. Me and my wife, we we, (laughs) we routinely watch quick change. 
Okay, so, well, we are talking about Enneagram threes today. Threes are the performer, the motivator, the successful achiever. They have a desire to appear successful and do something of value, uh, demand attention. We're going to be talking about the low side of security for Enneagram threes. You got, uh, what's the word on the low side of security for threes? So when threes step into places of security, this is when they are, um, when they're in good place, when they, when they feel like they're on top of things, when, uh, and this is, this is kind of tricky for threes because they feel like this a lot, but they aren't necessarily in security all of that time. (laughs) Um, when they move to secure points, they are, uh, they move towards six. They pick up some of the qualities that are at six. And uh, this, in in good and healthy ways, six gives them a sense of community. It gives, it makes them feel like they're part of something. Like they don't necessarily have to rise to the top anymore. They can use their strength to bring up the group. That's, that's the good expression at six. And in the more unhealthy way, as we see, uh, they start to pick up manipulation of the group. So they like that that sort of group aspect. It can become a, an identification with the group in such a way that like I am the group and the group is me. Therefore, I am in charge and this group operates the way that I think it should. Mm. And it's for the group's own good. Uh, you also get like you still have all of the threeness, and in unhealthy threes, it it really uh, becomes much more about style, but not necessarily drawing attention to the self. Talk about that. It's still about style, but not because, about self. Yeah, because it's all, always about appearance for threes. Now it just is transcended to the group. Yeah, and and we we want the group to operate as efficiently and cleanly as possible, and yeah. so I surround myself with a type of people that will that will be that for me. I only yeah. bring in the best at the things that I'm trying to accomplish. Mm. That'll play heavily into where we're going, as you will know. Yep. We're going to talk about threes. The fine folks at any app uh, put out a list. It had to do with villains, and they called the three villain villainy and style. So I was glad you brought up Perfect. style. Yeah, there is something about the appearance of this villain that is um, very outward. Their presentation to the world—it's very bright, robust. They're gaining attention, and their villainy can be all wrapped up in that presentation. Uh, we've listed a handful of villains on this front. We put one. Effie Trinket uh, from The Hunger Games. I don't actually know. You'll have to tell me this. I've only seen the first movie. I've never read the books. Sure. Does she have a... She seems like the kind of story uh, character that might have a redemptive arc. Well, she actually is a great example of an unhealthy three that recognizes she's unhealthy and can't get out of it. Oh, that's a good character. So, yeah, she... Yeah, it's um, her... Her unhealthiness becomes sort of this anchor, this albatross around her neck, because she so identifies herself with the organization that she's a part of that she then becomes a puppet of that organization. Ah, uh, that's interesting. The one we're talking about is way better, but if if 
if we weren't talking about this character, I, I feel like Effie Trinket would be a really interesting study. Oh, well, good. So. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll hit all of these villains at the end. Great. So I'm excited to see what you have to say there. Um, I, I put Renee Belloc from uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Perfect. As a three. Excellent three. Got some Humperdink. Humperdink, Humperdink, Humperdink. We're going to hit them at the end. Uh, others, there's a ton of three villains out there that could right. be mentioned, but these are the ones that we're going to emphasize. But for this time, our deep dive is going to go into uh, into the heist villain. So who are we, who are we tackling this time? Uh, Teach. It's almost hard for me to say his name. Uh, we are looking at the spectacular and wonderful, stylish Hans Gruber, played by the late Alan Rickman in everyone's favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard. I am so glad that you started it that way. That was actually <laughs> my first question, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And then I had a long response written out if you said no. It's like, okay, brother. Because apparently mean, Bruce Willis said it's not. He No, I thought he confirmed that it is. No, he said the opposite. And I think he's trolling people. Oh, sure. But because which like would Bruce totally Willis. be a Bruce Willis thing to do. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, it's a Christmas time. It's it, like the whole the entire thing takes place at a Christmas party. It's a Christmas movie filled with Christmas music. Yep. Christmas miracles yeah. are invoked. Yep. It's a Christmas movie. We were going to see that the great Hans Gruber actually uses Christmas as part of his methods of inspiring his his men right <laughs> it's a christmas movie i got a uh confession on this one as i was thinking through what else qualifies as great christmas movies and then i was listening to, to a podcast on die hard in which the the person who had the podcast said that this is not a christmas movie and they said no christmas vacation is a christmas movie and i all of a sudden i had this thing in my heart where i was like i hate christmas vacation that's it uh, we're done here I just can't stand that movie. <laughs> there is so it doesn't hold up on a handful. Like just being there, it, uh, objectively speaking, it doesn't hold up on a handful of fronts in terms of. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, and I want to apologize for Jeff right now. <laughs> Jeffy James tries to seduce about. the perfume salesperson in front of his son. Don't. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know his son was there. <laughs> That's a, well, that, that as you all know, that justifies it. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just, uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. I think I watched it with everyone last Christmas or the Christmas before, and I sat, I got halfway through, and I was just like, I don't like this movie. I also don't like a Christmas story, and so this is just to further <laughs> go down. Yeah. But the Muppets Christmas is amazing. Or Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah. It's my and Die Hard. Uh, I will concede this. Christmas Vacation is one of those movies that if you have not seen it before, now is probably the wrong time to watch it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Fully acknowledge that. But there are there's a long list of movies that are spectacular films that that is still true about. Christmas Vacation is one of them. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I can I can concede that my intuitions may be off on this. <laughs> but next 
Next time that uh, the family decides to uh, queue up the Christmas vacation. Um, You're going somewhere else. I'm going for eggnog and scotch, man. Sure. Okay, so, <laughs> die hard. <laughs> Ryder. Okay, this is a perfect storm of amazing 80s action people. Right. All either at their prime or right at the outset. The writer is Stephen E. D'Souza, 48 Hours, The Running Man, Commando. I suppose Commando's not doesn't have the greatest dialogue, <laughs> but 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 it was as a as somebody who watched Commando when I was seven and thought it was the best thing ever because sure, I was yeah. watching a rated R film at my friend's house. Yeah, <laughs> I have a soft spot in my heart. The height of '80s action films. The director is uh, John McTiernan. Hunt for Red October. Yeah. Predator. Excellent. I love The Last Action Hero. Yeah. Um, it's one of those that it's a hit or miss for a lot of folks, but I think it's hilarious. Yeah, it is. And then this is Bruce Willis's second movie after Blind Date, but he had always been the, the romantic comedy guy. Sure. And then you throw him in this. Right. He is killing people with his bare hands and saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to cook you, and I'm going to eat you yeah. to, to, to German terrorists. <laughs> I, I've heard, so I've, I've listened, there's, there's a lot of material out there on Die Hard, and it's a lot of people our age who are commenting on the movie. Um, do you have a first time, let me, before I get into this, actually, do you remember the first time you saw Die Hard? No. I saw this in middle school. Sure. At middle school. We had like a day like off. in school? In school. <laughs> so if you actually went to my middle school, I went to Maury Elementary School. It's two blocks away from the capital of Colorado, from like the Denver State Capitol building. If you go just two, two blocks to the east was my middle school. Sure, I've driven by that school. If you drive past it, it used to look like a penitentiary. It had at least twenty-five foot fences. It used to, it still kind of does a little. <laughs> they've they've dressed up. <laughs> they've they've made the playground out of you know that recycled material made out of Crocs, and so it's all vibrant, bright, eighties fluorescent colors. Sure. And yeah. you're like, that's not a penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did. We had the day off, and the teacher said, you know, what do you want to do? And Die Hard. Apparently, it just come out on VHS, and and that was the vote. We won't watch Die Hard, and they were like, "Okay, sure." And so that's where I saw it because <laughs> they did not know this what they were getting into. Rated R film. They're was showing it, to seventh graders. Was it bleeped out and stuff? No, it was legit. And I'm kind of looking back and forth. I saw Wait. it with my first girlfriend and her friend, who made fun of me the whole time. And my new girlfriend broke up with me sure. thereafter because I think <laughs> think she got talked into. That guy's not for you. Sure, but how dare but, he like Die Hard? Isn't right. there? There's nudity in this film. There might be some nudity in the film in a variety of places with posters and people uh, who are being uh, she- uh, you know what shepherded by by the terrorists. So in middle school, were all your teachers like taking a smoke break instead of watching it, watching you guys? I, or <laughs> did nobody I, notice? <laughs> so in order to get into the mindset of Maury, you have idealists who are working at Maury. Yeah. And you have people who are have mailed it in mm, at, sure. the, at the time I was there. Yeah. And the idealists were in their office working. 
Yes. And left all of, the, yeah. all of the ones who were mailing it in to the, watch the students. The, whoever the teacher was that was mailing it in, when they heard, hey, the kids want to watch Die Hard, they raised their hand and said, I will oversee this. Yeah, And sure. just make sure that nothing gets out of control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll mute it during all the F-bombs. I don't know that I appreciated the movie at the time. I think I was way more into this girl who was going to break up yeah, with me. Yeah, you were in the, middle school, man. Yeah, that, yeah, that's how that went. So, but routinely you come back to the movie and you're just like, man, this. there's never a time where you get done with this movie and aren't satisfied. Right. I know what's going to happen at the end, mm-hmm. at the, the very the very last scene with with uh, Sergeant Al Powell. And I'll, I cry every single time. Sure. Because uh, I'm a movie crier, but it's still the yeah. case. I'm just like, this is just a satisfying movie. Yeah. Very different from other action films. You go back in the day, man, it's Schwarzenegger and Stallone, and and now you got the blue-collar guy that you're elevating who's afraid of flying and starts the movie trying to do some, some uh, you know, 80s pop psychology by making fists with his toes. Right. <laughs> Conan's not doing that. But that's where Bruce Willis starts. He's in a fight with his spouse. She has a better job than he does. He's uh, he's clearly... One of the things, actually, on rewatch this time, just to get this out of the way, I was real curious what you thought about this. This feels like a great feminist movie. Sure. It's entirely populated by men. Right. But there's there's a strong feminist angle. You know what I'm talking about? Because she's the number two at this whole branch. And And it's clearly the case that she's the most competent person in that company right. with maybe the exception of the CEO. Yeah. And he is McLean is he's coming to essentially beg for scraps for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Like he is he is not coming to dominate this situation and she is not even a little bit interested in representing some type of submissive. Yeah. She's like, would you, you can be, stay in my guest room. <laughs> <laughs> would you be surprised if this is a marriage of two eights? No. That I was watching on the fourth viewing. <laughs> I, started, <laughs> I thought, I wonder if they've just put two eights together and just went, all right, let's do some conflict. Sure. Yeah. Because their fight at the beginning, and obviously we're going to get into Alan Rickman for a while here, but right. their fight at the beginning is spectacular. Right. In terms of neither one's going to back down. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. Yeah. And this is how things go. And if you don't like this, I will leave. And by the way, I'm taking our kids with us and I'm going to make more money than you do as a single mom. Right. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I completely focus on Alan Rickman while I was watching this for this. So I somebody asked me earlier today what I think John McClane is. I was like, I don't know. I didn't think about him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My brain space was occupied by the great Hans Gruber, which I have a theory that Alan Rickman's uh, performance alongside the thousands of great details and the script in this is phenomenal. The editing of this movie is phenomenal. um, Just pacing wise. But this movie creates a genre of the hero and peril sort, you know, mm-hmm. you, after this, you have speed or you have cliffhanger or you have, uh, one of my favorites is toy soldiers, which we never see. It's boarding, you know, these boarding house kids who have terrorists take over and, sure. um, none of them are as good as 
Die Hard. And one of the reasons they're not as good is because this villain is so great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bill Simons, who's a podcaster, uh, calls uh, Hans Gruber the best movie action villain of all time. Okay. Uh, AFI has him number 46 on the all-time villain list. And you may know this. This is Alan Rickman's first movie. Which is, it's it's hard to believe, you know? Yeah. Like, like he's he's British doing a German accent who who does an American accent. Yeah. And like, like he's definitely not in his early 20s in this film. No, he, right? And he's an older guy. where has he been? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, been, he's been crushing Shakespeare somewhere, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, quick question to start us off. Is Hans Gruber a three? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to say no for people who might disagree with us on this. But I think... It really comes out later on because at, at the end of the day, we're always, whenever we're talking about the Enneagram, we're always talking about motivation. Why are these people doing the things that they're doing? And, and if you're not talking about motivation, then you're not talking about the Enneagram. So when talking about Hans Gruber, we, we need to explore why he's robbing this place. Yes. If we're only talking about what he's doing, then at least at least two-thirds of the film, I could argue that he's Nate. That's fine. Ooh, okay. Or or lots of other numbers. That's fine. But when we get into motivation and when we get into some of the behavior that he has in the later parts, then we really start to see more of that threeness come out, I think. It's uh yeah, I suppose we're going to spend a ton of time elevating those elements. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that strikes me most, I heard this, and this helped me see the movie in a different way, is that the writer was, uh, Netflix has a fantastic series right now uh, called The Movies That Made Us, mm-hmm. in which they kind of do a biography of these movies. And one of them was Die Hard. And the writer said that he wrote Hans Gruber as a hero in his head. Yeah. And this is a success story in which the protagonist is going from, you know, this hard hard work, doing all the things to alertness and ambition, and they become charming and they have a plan and they want to win. And in the end, they're standing in front of a bank vault that opens. Right. And that feels like a great three story in terms of, that's what they want. They yeah. want to be successful. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that that's the, uh, at the heart of this character. Yep. And, and like, you could see five, you could see eight, and, and the things I want to point, like, like the, he, he clearly has a plan. And yep. he clearly values efficiency. And these are very five and eight qualities. Yep. But he shares too much of himself to be a five. Ooh. Yep. And he does not command loyalty from his team the way an eight would. That's that's a great call. Talk about that because I had a, I have a different take on the eights, but that's a that's a great call. He commands loyalty and talk about how. Well I think that his loyalty so this this gets into the part of of 
threes and security that, that he picks up a little bit of this at six is that he has not brought on the the brutest people. He has not brought on the most loyal people. He has not brought on subjects. He has brought on the, the best people at their work. So yeah. Theo, yep. Theo isn't on board because he's because he's so loyal. Like clearly this is a guy like you could bet money that Theo will go to whoever the highest bidder is. Yeah. Because he's the best. Yeah. Like you can tell how cocky he is. (laughs) And uh, like, like the characters, the the people that, that Hans has assembled, his team is there because they're the best at what they do. And so his, the loyalty that he commands is more about the fact that he has the plan and he has brought in, the right people to execute the right plan. Yep. That's entirely right. Yeah. I want to talk a ton about that in a while. And that is the three in security exercising their gifting. My, I'm a terrible, you'll know this. I, I am terrible at hiring people. <laughs> My wife who is a three is amazing at finding great people to hire. Right. And part of it is the attachment side. This is how she connects with the world. Mm -hmm. Three sixes and nines attach. She's attaching to those who are going to make her successful. Right. And just has a fantastic radar for this person's not going to screw this up. Right. And make me look bad. Right. And that's who Gruber is. Yeah. A lot of deceptiveness in this character, which I think we'll talk about throughout the movie? Yep. That's he's, that was a big point for me as well. He's clearly posturing as a terrorist. He even releases to, to the, the media. Leader Hans, maybe this man Hans Gruber, a member of the radical West German Volksfrei movement. Strangely, the Volksfrei leadership issued a communique an hour ago stating that Gruber had been expelled from that organization. Because he wants the media to believe something about his image. Right. Those people in the building are terrorists and he's part of this terrorist group. Right. And if everyone knows that he's a terrorist, then of course the way his plan works, he's going to get away. Right. Ends up having that one awesome scene where he calls the FBI and, or no, it's, he's talking to the LAPD and he says, I have comrades in arms around the world languishing in prison. And then he turns to his buddy who's like, what the hell are you talking about? And he says, I, I read about him in time magazine. It's perfect. (laughs) But it's, it's entirely, I want you to believe something about me. Right. Puts on that American accent quick because he knows how to put on a mask. Yep. All of that's behavior. Mm -hmm. However, what it, do you see there with yeah, just it, a couple of examples? It points to something larger. So so his behavior serves him to the purpose that he's, like the, the motivation behind the behavior is the thing that matters. Um, but it also points to, so uh, again, bringing in five and eight, fives and eights are not interested in deception. Yeah, yeah. And, and like deception is all over this character. Boom. He he's not necessarily lying about all things. He's lying to fulfill his purposes. Yes. He wants it to appear that he's dead. And that's how he's gonna get away. Right. And that's just that's core to his plan. And that can be the real temptation for threes mm-hmm. of the deceptive nature of I want a certain image. The thing that I wanted your thoughts on are on on this before we get into the movie is that seems to be counterintuitive to wanting attention 
and even demanding attention. He's going to pull off one of the great robberies ever, but he's only going, it's only going to be known by his guys. And so is he actually getting the attention that he really desires as a three? Would a three do that? I, w- I would challenge that by saying, what does uh, Hans Gruber, who doesn't die, look like in 50 years? That is, of all things, that's my last question to you. <laughs> Was going to be, don't you think this movie would be better if Hans got away? Because I don't think he could have stayed anonymous. Oh, yes, that's it. Yeah. I, d- I don't think that he would have actually lived out his life without making sure that people knew. If Hans Gruber did not die at the end of this film, if they yeah. understood, let, let's be honest here. <laughs> if these people understood the kind of legacy that this film would have, Hans right. Gruber would have been in at least three of the others. Corey, you, I don't know how they don't know this. But you got to know inventing that, a genre. That, I mean, you are crushing it with this character. There's not really a good reason to have him die at the end. It's very I, satisfying. I feel, I feel like it would be like if you had the Hannibal Lecter kind of scene where yeah. you saw him on a beach yeah. gaining 20%. I think that would be satisfying yep. if 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 there had there had to be another wrinkle of how he made it out, but it would have been that's how great heist movies work. Right, it's like oh he had this other thing in mind the whole time. Right. Anyway, what could alas, have been alas. <laughs> this? The one thing that keeps it from being a perfect movie. Otherwise, I think this is a perfect movie. Sure. Um, lasting. Well, not last thing. I got two other things. But Gruber st- strikes me as a ruthless character. Mm-hmm. That feeling repressed side, I think, is there. He can shoot a man in the head and not care about it. Right. Um, but uh, not in the way that eights are ruthless. Not in the way that fives are sort of objective. Not in the way that sevens are sort of moving on. Yeah. Like, he gave this guy a chance. He's not interested in killing Takagi. Unless Takagi doesn't give him what he wants. And he warned him. He told him exactly what was going to happen. There's a principle that Kelly brought up when I, when I was, I was walking through this movie with her. Uh She said something real interesting to me about three. She says three's one at all. We want to steal three, $600 million. Mm -hmm. And we want it to be somebody else's fault. Sure. And that pops up a couple times. Yeah. In his language where it's like, I'm doing something immoral. I know it's immoral, mm-hmm. but it's their fault. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point those out because in terms of typing him as a three, there's a couple places where I was like, ooh, yeah. that's some deeper stuff going on there in yep. terms of the image that he wants others to see in terms of his immoral behavior. And pointing more toward something that threes need to get in touch with with themselves is that he does not understand that he has convinced himself of this. Yeah. Like he's in his, like he's not just spinning a yarn about why he thinks this is okay. He has legitimately convinced himself that this is okay because these people are bad. Yes. And notice that it's not about justice. He's stealing $600 million from yes. them. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, it's about success. And yeah, this is the goal. Yep. 
I'm going to bring that up a bunch. One last thing before we really get into this, and I loved this reflection. Um, when talking about security for threes and going to six, security for threes is going to be about finding oneself in and leading a group, mm -hmm. or, or at least having that. You're, you have received the attention that you want, and now you are in the group. Yeah. And I want to talk about the crew, okay? because his as you were kind of saying, this group of henchmen is is a wonderful kaleidoscopic group of guys. Right. Even though there there there's all sorts of fun characters here that have all sorts of different kind of character beats, several um, different languages. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's the guy who played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, right. who's 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 pulling out the Snickers bar, waiting for the LAPD to come in with a tank. Right. <laughs> you know, there's there's such a great variety here. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, John Roca and Steve Morris say on the fantastic Cinephiles podcast is they point out that in this movie there are people that you like and people you don't like, and the terrorists are among the people that you like. Hmm. I'm going to keep calling them terrorists. I realize that they're they're robbers, but no, but they are terrorists. Like I think this is another thing about it, like points to him being a three is that he's also convinced himself that oh! they are not terrorists. He's they're literally this. about to blow up a building and kill a bunch of innocent people. Oh, that's so good. That's exactly right. But he has convinced himself that they're not terrorists. They're robbers. <laughs> reframing how he describes the crew that is that's excellent so these please feel these, free to call them terrorists yeah so these guys have specialization they got gadgets they have computer expertise they got fake ids they got the uniforms they have um, guided missiles they are people that you think have talent and skills and you know what if you were going to do a heist you'd want these kind of guys around yep the two, the moment with the two brothers at the beginning, they break into the building. One of the brothers is disarming the alarm system. The other one cranks up the chainsaw and just cuts all the wires. Right. And one of the brothers is like, "You can't do that. We got to get the alarm." Yeah. And the one of the brothers clearly is might sabotage the whole thing just to punk his brother. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can tell they're brothers that are just messing with each other. <laughs> On the flip side, you don't like any of the other people. You don't like the FBI guys. You don't like the news reporters. You don't like the intellectuals on TV talking about terrorists and hostage situations. Right. You know, all of the city workers and the all the cops. Coked out with, Wall Street guys. Are right. Terrible. We don't like any of the people. Except for Carl Winslow. Ex that, except for... Al Pal yep. and John McClain. Yep. And maybe Holly Janeiro. And Hans Gruber. <laughs> and w that makes his character so much better. Right. Because everybody else is a jerk. Mm -hmm. And that's where Hans Gruber is being written as the hero who's stealing from this multinational corporation that probably has way too much money. And, and as he will say, you know, their their projects of greed around the world. Right. They deserve this. Right. Who, do, who doesn't Hood. who doesn't think that it's wrong to rob from billionaires who have way too much money anyway, kind of thing. Right. He's <laughs> not the sheriff of Nottingham. He's Robin Hood. <laughs> one of our 
woke villains, or pre-woke villain, perhaps. There you go. But he's going to be sitting on a beach getting 20%. Oh, right. He I'm not sure if he's not doing this for justice. That's right. <laughs> he did, did not say, we're going to be sitting on a beach letting our money create cures for cancer around yeah, the world. No, no. <laughs> he's just a thief. Just a thief. But there is something. So here's a question for you. What is the difference between the Ocean's Eleven crew and the Hans Gruber crew? Well, for starters, Ocean's Eleven isn't interested in killing anyone. I think that's the only thing. Okay. Yeah. I'll take that. We're just we're just fine with, with uh, Danny Ocean ripping off a casino right. at the end of the day, and we cheer it when he gets away. Right. It's the fact but that But also, Hans Gruber... Takagi isn't a villain. The guy no. who owns the casino is a villain. Oh, I guess that's true. The the Nakatomi organization, like the Nakatomi Corporation might be a villain, but Takagi isn't that we know what's, of. What's that guy's name? Garcia? Something uh, who's the Ocean's Eleven villain? Andy Garcia sends in his henchmen to beat the hell out of Danny Ocean, I suppose, in that one scene. That's true. Yeah. You deserve it. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to bring in a quote from a different movie to okay. set the stage of who I think Hans Gruber is. Okay. Hans doesn't know how to hack computers. He doesn't know explosives. But he is able to inspire and move a crew forward unlike anyone else. And so thinking on Gruber, there's a line from uh, one of my favorite films, which is Steve Jobs with the great Michael Fassbender. Um, Seth Rogen is playing uh, Wozniak, and Wozniak says to Steve Jobs, you can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphic interface was stolen from Xerox. Someone else designed the box. So how is it that 10 times a day, I read in the newspapers that Steve Jobs is a genius. What do you do? And Fassbender, as Steve Jobs says, I play the orchestra. And that's Hans Gruber. Yep. Feels powerful and secure when he is conducting the orchestra. And lo and behold, Beethoven is playing throughout this movie. Yeah. Want to get into that movie? Yeah. Finally. Let's do it. So, truck pulls into the garage. We see Gruber as the leader of the crew. They enter. This isn't the actual official beginning of the movie. This right. is just we're they just talking about set, Gruber. A bunch scenes. of setup work. Yeah. McLean came, and he and his wife are having problems. That's all you need to know until the real character <laughs> that we're interested in shows up. So the crew enters, they shoot the guards, they ride the elevator up to the party in a high-rise building, they begin firing their guns, they get everyone in this big room, and Gruber begins to speak. And he has a little book in front of him, like he's standing there almost like a priest. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. I love this intro and have never paid attention to it. Hmm. But looking at it for our podcast, there were all sorts of details that I was like, this is worth talking about. Sure. So do you see anything here? 
Um, there, there, I mean, there's just Hans Gruber is a fantastic villain. Like him walking off the truck with the trench coat and the like, the beautiful suit and the yep. like surrounded by his henchmen who are the best in the business. And and like he, all he has to do is walk upstairs. Yeah. Um, and he, he has, like, everyone's playing their part. It's a great setup. And then him stepping in that place, like, I thought a lot about the book. Like, why does he have that book? Did he write a speech? <laughs> yeah, right? You know? what, what's uh, the story is, with the book? Did Alan Rickman need a little help with his lines? Like, what's happening with that book? <laughs> and then he launches into explaining details about the guy he's looking for. And it's because he wants to make sure these people know that he knows exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. Something about his knowledge, it's not like a five here. It's not that he knows everything. It's that he wants them to know that he knows everything. Yeah, he has done his homework, and he wants to make sure he gets that gold star. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I and this it may just be my vocation, but him standing like a priest and saying you will all be witnesses, that is highly religious language that you might use, say at a funeral. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into a eulogy. Where is Mr. Takagi? Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi. Born Kyoto, 1937. Family emigrated to San Pedro, California, 1939. He is going through what this person has done mm-hmm. with their one and only lives, right? Mm-hmm. It's both, I command the stage, I am demanding attention as a three, and it's the case that he is saying this is a place of death sure, and creating a cloud in that space Yeah, that is very uncomfortable. Sure. I love... When Takagi steps forward and says, Enough. And Gruber concludes, And father of five. And he is ruthless in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then he turns and he says, How do you do? It's a pleasure to meet you. You can see it in his posture where he's like, I want this person's affection or respect. What do you see there? Uh, Well, I'm... I mentioned already, like the the attention to detail, the almost show offishness of drawing out all of these points, and I I feel like he's also he's also trying to establish how civilized he is. Yes, uh, and and that comes out a lot more. Like we'll, we'll talk about that later, but but there's yep. this isn't he is not a ruthless thug. Yep. Not only has he done his homework, but he's also very civilized. And he knows that the man whose life he's about to threaten is a father of five. Spot on. Yeah. Things that I see here is, one, Gruber, just on the face of it, he has a radar for success. Mm -hmm. He has an elevation. All of these are accomplishments. You know, Harvard, Stanford Law Degree, president of the Nakatomi Corporation. He has a radar for success Mm -hmm. and it's the case that throughout all of this he is selling himself he's he's going to routinely pitch things such that other people know that he also has huge value sure well 
and we'll get to that. You had mentioned that. Mm -hmm. But that becomes the elevator scene. Mm -hmm. He grabs Takagi. They jump in the elevator. These three lines... I feel like we could talk about for an hour. Right. They are so well composed and delivered. In, and we won't so talk much about them for an hour, but we could. <laughs> Gruber is whistling uh, Ode to Joy, mm-hmm. which which runs in these these fantastic ways throughout the, the movie in these very dissonant tones until yeah. the bank, bank vault opens. Yeah. Turns to Takagi and says, Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. And then Takagi, like, snaps, too, looks at him differently. And he is aware of something, that this person was formidable because he had guns and knows my history. But now I know that he can dissect me. Mm-hmm. Um, anything just, just there. He's pointing out his clothing. What do you, what do you see with Gruber? Well, again, that that attention to, uh, like, villainy and style, like, the, the attention to how nice his things are like this is also very three-ish and and being not not just noticing what it is but also like aligning myself with like i am your equal yep not only because i recognize what your suit is but i have some (laughs) It's de- if you can look at my clothing, which he, which Takagi apparently cares about, mm-hmm. identify its maker without looking at the brand. Right. You know, you you run in a different kind of circle. Right. You are you are part of the elite of the globe. Mm-hmm. I have to myself just says, so am I. I'm I'm not playing around, and I run in these circles. Right. Love that line. Yeah. And then if it were just those two lines, it would be, you know what? We could be friends. Right. We're going to be pals. Yeah. But then he drops the third line. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his there. And this colors everything yeah. about this exchange. Yeah. Arafat, for the, you know, is a, is a, is a what, Libyan dictator. Right. And at the, this point in time is seen as a very diabolical character right. in world affairs. A terrible person in the 80s. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I run in these circles. I run in these circles. I run in these circles. Right. That's how the, that's, that's the, it's, it's like jokes where you say, you set up the joke with one example and a second example, and then the third example is off. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on here. It's right. like, it's like, hey, we're, we're, we're buds. We, we buy the same suits. And I hear that. People who command terror around the world also buy these suits. Well, and I think also, like, I can tell that you are a man of style. I am also a man of style. We are the same. And by the way, we're the same as Yasser Arafat. (laughs) Yes. There it is. Is it... Okay, so to go back to his introduction in saying that uh, Takagi's corporation is just one of greed or... Right. Irresponsible right. around the world. Is yep. that all it is? It's yeah. like we're all part of this game. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna just show you that I can play it better than you can. Right. Right. Come and on. and whatever you think about yourself, understand that you are in the same circle as Yasser Arafat. Yep. Yeah. I wanna draw attention to this is a three-ish moment in my mind. Mm-hmm. This is all demand of attention. Yep. 
he is playing a hand and the hand that he's dealt, he plays it. And what he wants out of that hand is the attention of this man mm-hmm. alone. Yep. And he wants him to believe certain things about him. That strikes me as very three-ish. Agreed. Step out of the elevator, sees Takagi's office, I assume, and there is this fantastic model in front of them, and Han says, When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Again, saying this, you are just a, you know, what, a tyrant, a domineering, you're a businessman who is dominating pieces of land, just like Alexander. Mm -hmm. But then he... It's not just that he is framing this. He then says... Benefits of a classical education. He's selling himself. Right. Look at, look at my skill set that I have in this moment. Yeah. Well, and, and in the alignment of Takagi and the Nakatomi Corporation with Alexander and, and understanding that like this is... This is it's, it's the Halliburton of 1988. Yeah. Like they, yep. they have operations all over the world. They have their hands in so many things. And look at the breadth of what your corporation has done. And by the way, I recognize that you're in the same kinds of circles as Yasser Arafat, but understand that like we are part of the same, almost like we're cut from the same cloth. Is this the pre-game ritual? We are going to have a confrontation. We are going to sit down at a table and have an arm wrestling contest. Mm -hmm. We're going to sit down at the table and we're going to have the actual fight, as it were. We're going to see who's really the best man. What would a three want? It's not the best man. Who's actually successful in this moment? Yeah, who's, who's the better person? And yeah. it, and like the the competitiveness of threes is is in basically everything. Like who that's wins? What it is. There is a competition that's going to take mm-hmm. place, and well, and the setup here is that you need to know that we are equals first. Yes. So that you aren't that so that we don't have to start at the place where I have to prove myself to you. I want to have your best game. Yep. And so just so we're clear, we're on the same level here. Gosh, I love that. There is something about, okay, when I get real competitive, I feel, I say things like that. I want you to know this is who I am mm-hmm. so that now we can do what we need to do. Yeah. I, there, there's a measure of, I don't know, there's a measure of pleasure and in the you know engagement with others who I think are high quality human beings where I want to elevate myself, not because I want them for myself, it's not because I want them to think a certain way about me, but it's because I want this game to be clean and I want to test myself. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to test yourself. Yeah, they want to beat a rival that's worthy of them. Yeah, and so and that's what I was going to get at. Yeah, yeah. talk about that. That's well, good. there's there's another spectacular three villain that we haven't really talked about that I don't know that we mentioned, and I have no idea if it's coming. Um, but but this is. Excellently showcased by uh, Moriarty in uh, the BBC Sherlock. He, so like Hans Gruber doesn't outright say it. Moriarty does. And it's, it's this 
this desperation to find someone who is as good as I am so that I can beat them. Oh, that's good. Okay, because that's bar- the quotes that Moriarty has were real tricky for me to get to three. But if that's the motive, yeah, why is Moriarty trying to engage Sherlock so hard? It's because he wants someone who is actually worthy of beating. Yeah. It's because it he shows- wants to be better, but it doesn't matter if he's better than these peasants. Yeah. Because of course he's better than these peasants. But here's someone who can actually match him. And he wants to beat him. It's just a level of excellence that he can see in himself then. Right. If I can beat this person, then this is my quality and standing. Right. That's interesting. Hans says uh, about the model in front of him. Oh, that's beautiful. I always enjoyed to make models when I was a boy. The exactness, the attention to every conceivable detail. Beautiful. That's not one-ish language, I don't think. That's elevating excellence. Do you see something else there? And it's like models in particular. Like he wants to build something that's pretty to look at. Mm. Takagi says, this is what this is about, our building project in Indonesia. Contrary to what you people think, we're going to develop that region, not exploit it. He's talking about the intro, and he's defending himself and his company from how Hans was characterizing it. And he's talking to a terrorist. <laughs> he's talking he's to trying to get out of this terrorist. situation. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Hans says, I believe you. I read the article in Forbes. Apparently he already knows what Takagi's interests are. Right. And how they're going to, how this multi-million dollar worldwide corporation is going to frame whatever it is they're actually doing. Their whole goal is to make more money. Oh, I the see. The way they're framing yeah. it yeah. is very much in the vein of, of economic structure. Hans has a radar for other people spinning the narrative yep. to make them look good. Yep. It's like, Which dude, I like, live there. I live there. Threes don't <laughs> Try to pull this kind of stuff on threes because That's exactly. they can smell it from a mile away. I have heard uh, one TJ Wilson say it takes a thief to catch a thief. Exactly. Might apply here. <laughs> Puts his arm around Takagi, guides him into the boardroom where Theo is sitting, ready to type in some uh, information. Han says, Mr. Takagi, we could discuss industrialization of men's fashions all day, but I'm afraid my associate, Mr. Theo, has some questions for you. By the way, on the internet, there are a handful of sites that print full scripts. Mm-hmm. Like this was the actual working script mm-hmm. that the, the actors used. Sure. And we use this all the time in our podcast. Yeah. I have, I have never seen a script as... Uh, re-articulated in a better way is this one. Hans Gruber's lines in the actual script weren't very good. Sure. I have a, I have a strong belief that Alan Rickman came in and said, I can do this better. Yeah. 
and I absolutely believe that reframed how this character was going to say things and what they were going to say, except for exposition. All the exposition is just normal. Sure. But anytime it's about the character and storytelling, Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman is is creating this character on set and doing a anyway. Just as a side note, hard to beat. Um. Takagi says, looks and he says, I don't have that code. You broke in here to access our computer. Any information you could get, they wake up in Tokyo in the morning, they're going to change it. You won't be able to blackmail us or our executives. He's guessing at the motives of the folks in front of him. Still talking to Hans. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Hans shuts him down. Now we're at the table and now it's business time. Mm -hmm. And Hans takes control. I'm really not interested in your computer. And now he's going to lay all his cards on the table. But I need the code key because I am interested in the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds that you have locked in your vault. Takagi says, you want money? What kind of terrorists are you? He's bought the image. Thing he's done has made people want to believe that. And now he laughs at him. And again, he's in control at the table with a person who oversees a billion dollar company, right. a, a company worth multi billion dollars. Right. They, they're sitting on $640 yeah, million dollars like, in their vault. But like, also, let's, let's acknowledge that these guys who brought in guided missiles and a crap ton of C4 <laughs> and like all of this stuff, like $640 million was a lot of money in 1988. <laughs> True. Like he says but that amount and I'm like, what? Still That's probably not that a lot of money. money. It probably costs them that much to like just organize this. Oh, right. $640 million in 1988 was a lot. That was a lot of money. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd take $640 million. Sure. Would you blow up a building in downtown LA for $640 million? I know a lot of people who would. Well, I don't know them, but I probably could. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to find them. (laughs) Hans (laughs) laughs. Who said we were terrorists? And again, it's image, 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 and he's in control of this situation. He's in control of his image. He is bantering with a billionaire, and he's winning. Yeah. Yeah, this guy has bought into all of his lies. Now, there is a physicality that takes place at this point, which I think is wonderful and yeah. plays into the three image. Because yeah. this is the point where Hans pulls out the gun. The gun has had a silencer on it. And he begins unscrewing the silencer. There's no reason to unscrew the silencer. You can shoot a person with or without the silencer. Right. But if I unscrew it... The gun's going to be louder, one, and it's showing I don't care who hears this, and two, it's it's just intimidating. Intimidating as hell. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, talk about that, because that was, I feel like the aggressive attention-seeking goes uh, dastardly, goes villainous at this moment. Well, there's, yeah, like the whole thing with the gun is super interesting to me, because like, Hey, he has that beautiful gun, and all of his guys. It is have, a beautiful gun. Yeah, pretty standard like terrorist machine guns. Yep, and he's got this one weapon, this beautiful silver Walther, and 
I I don't know guns, but like it it's a it's a pretty gun, <laughs> and and this is the only thing that he really carries throughout the film, as far as weapons it, go. So yeah, it's just this elegant James Bond kind of weapon, and he's set apart because it's it's really the only gun I bet you in the whole movie that's silver and not black. Sure. I want to specially mark this spot because this is the moment where he's in total control. And as we've talked about in the past, he has what he wants. Mm -hmm. He's gotten all of the attention he craves. And now he is in total security. Yeah. Power-wise, base desire-wise as a three, he has gotten everything he wants, and now he's in security, and he's going to go to the low side. Mm -hmm. He has his men there, his two primary men, Theo and Carl, are sitting at the table and their their banter is real interesting. I'm I'm super excited to talk to you about this. Yeah. But this is the villainous this is where the villainy is gonna come forth because he has a dark heart. Mm-hmm. The code, please. It's useless to you. There are seven safeguards on our vault and the code key is only one of them. You'll never get it open. And then there's no reason not to tell it to us. Here's the moment. It's such a great understated moment. Theo turns to Carl, and he says, I told you. They start a side conversation. Mm -hmm. And Carl says, It's not over yet. Like, they have been bantering, and we'll realize later that they have a bet because they exchange money. Right. Hans knows what's up, and this is the moment. He needs attention from the billionaire in front of him Mm -hmm. or from his men, and they have a bet about whether or not he's going to be successful. And that's when he goes dark. Sure. He's going to lose in front of his guys. And that's when he says, It's a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi. To be ashamed to ruin it. He goes ahead and plays his ace on the table and says, We are going to do this in a way where I'm successful. I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. Give me the code. One. Two. Tagi starts his banter. I don't know it. You're just going to have to kill me. And that's where the three, he has failed. He's not going to extract this information. And so he shoots him in the head. Mm -hmm. And I love the side bet. And I never noticed it before. Sure. I, until I looked at the script. It's real clear in the script. And that then, after he shoots him in the head, then Carl gives Theo a buck. Sure. Or a 20 or whatever it is. That sure. They exchange. Yeah. And then Han says, we'll do it the hard way. And then he looks at Theo after, after Theo gets a buck from Carl. Now, you can break the code. Because he doesn't want to be a failure. Right. And Theo says, You didn't bring me along for my charming personality. I love this scene. Yeah. I love everything about this scene. Another thing that I want to point to, which is, I, I think it's, it's, it's three-ish, but it's also the three drawing something from six, is like he has a plan, but he also has a backup for when the plan fails. Ooh. And this is this is another thing that you get at six. When yeah. threes go to six, they're thinking 
the, like one of the places where sixes live is is thinking about what might go wrong. And and threes often are sort of just barreling ahead. But when they get into those secure places, they have the that the ability to make better plans. Yeah. Because they're able to plant like threes are very good at pivoting and turning whatever their failures are into successes. When threes get more secure, they actually plan for failure a little bit better. Talk about this on that front. The threes, sevens, and eights, uh-huh. aggressive types, yep. are future problem solvers mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I think there's there's probably a mixture of those two elements. That's how I would read that. But I love how you're yeah. thinking through that, that at six, you're thinking about what could, could go wrong. Right. I see this frequently in terms of my my diet i'm not future focused my wife is very much future future focused and a lot of our conversation ends up being about have you remembered to do x y and z which isn't going on right now it's going on in 15 minutes and why would i think about something going on in 15 minutes sure (laughs) yeah the future focus in in the three stance is what i read there yeah but it could be both yeah right because so so I I would say that that typically threes are like their future focus is about what's going to go right. They don't plan for failure. Sixes plan for failure. Oh really? Okay. So let's talk about that. I've always read this as the three. The underlying feeling for the three, two, three, and four is. Either depending on who you ask, it's either shame or it's um, you know kind of avoidance of relational rejection. Um, I've already forgotten what Suzanne's language is on this. She uses something else. She doesn't like shame. She likes it's relational anxiety. That's sure. what it is. She wants to say five sixes and sevens are fear, and two threes fours are relational anxiety, mm-hmm. and so. What I've always thought is that the heart triad has a strong foothold in the past. That's the um, the orientation to time of the heart triad is in the past. Mm-hmm. Here's how relationships in the past have gone badly. Mm-hmm. For threes, it's looking forward saying, I never, ever, ever want that to happen again. And I will do everything it takes to ensure that I never feel the relational anxiety I felt before. And so that their aggressive posture and their forward thinking and their their desire to be successful seems to me to play out of that. That's how I would read that. But if we bring in the six element, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that, that I would add an element that I think I, I don't think most threes see their past in that way because they reframe. They so, are so already getting ahead of it. They don't think about the things that went badly from their past. They think about okay. the things that went well, and how do they get that again? Oh, okay. So I'm I got the negative spin. You got the positive right. spin. You're saying this is probably where threes are, live is more in the positive spin. Yep. yep. Especially thinking about some of the threes that I know really, really well who do not live in failure. Right. They do not think about the things that went wrong. They think about the things that went right and plan for success. 
I'd be real curious. I mean, I don't know how this would work, but if there's a subconscious avoidance. Sure. You can reframe all you want, but there's still this subconscious, we're never going to this place because mm-hmm. that's poison. Well, and that's that's part of the that's part of the deception. Yeah. This the self-deception is that is um making sure that the image that I present to the world does not allow for failure because if everyone knew who I truly was, then they would know I'm worthless. Mm. Yep. But that is pushed so far down that that it is always focused on the on the positive, always focused on the future, always focused on the fact on success. It's not yeah, it's it's framed in this way that that I will do whatever it takes to make sure that nobody sees me fail. Therefore, everything that I do will be successful. Yeah. The reframing is really strong in the next scene Mm -hmm. because he's going to go back out to all the hostages and reframe everything. I wanted this to be professional, efficient, adult, cooperative, not a lot to ask. Efficient's a good three word. Mm -hmm. Yep. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. We can go anywhere you want us. You can walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions, we are in charge. So, decide now, each of you. And please remember, we have left nothing to chance. And again, wants to have it all. He's murdered someone, but the murder is someone else's fault, image-wise. He gave him the chance. Likewise the case, the three comes out, there are plans, efficiency, cooperative... Gruber has surrounded himself with competent people. He's using the team in his secure place, and he is elevating himself over Takagi, who clearly wasn't as good as he was. Right. Come on. This is where the movie kind of turns. Right after the murder. Yeah, right after the murder. (laughs) We we kind of see that these are the stakes. Right. And you've put your characters all in the places that they're going to be for a while now. Because mm-hmm. McLean, as you'll know, sees the execution. Um, he goes to a higher floor. He sets off a fire alarm. Hans quickly has his team hear about the alarm, cancel the alarm. And then he sends Tony. Uh, this is not a good name for a German terrorist. But Tony goes up. Tony, Tony and Carl. German? To, I well I don't know he seems like he's a he's he looks like a uh, you know he's a blonde eye blonde blue eyed guy sure <laughs> well Tony goes up to he's got a machine gun McLean hears him they fight and Tony dies McLean puts Tony's body in an elevator because he's baiting it's clearly bait yeah they and you know the elevator door opens as Hans is saying we have left nothing to chance. Here's this there's this fly in the ointment. There's a cadaver in an elevator that yeah. says, ho, 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 I have a machine gun. Yeah. Which is, that is just stellar screenwriting. Yeah. Um, Hans reads it for us. <laughs> Fritz, who apparently is the guy standing guard, says, perhaps a security guard we've overlooked. And Hans says, security guard. And then he flies through this line. It's real. This is just Reichman just killing it. Tired of growing fat on a pension. No, no, no. This is something else. Which is interesting because 
he uses the security guard line later. Mm-hmm. But here he says, this isn't a security guard. Right. And Fritz says, we have to do something, Hans. And Hans says, yes, we have to tell Carl his brother is dead. I, again, love this move. He cares about his team. Right. He knows their all of their emotions, and he knows the dynamics. He mm-hmm. is the conductor. Yeah. And he's like, this has upset our, my orchestra, and I need to figure out how to lead moving forward. Yeah. And also let it serve as, as motivation, I think. Oh, true. Because Well, there's something interesting, because he's going to frame the situation they're in. Right. He's going to say this... This I'll move to the next thing because Carl comes in, he flips over a table, he's super pissed off. Carl's yelling out, I want blood. Notice how Hans works this. I want blood. You'll have it. But let Heinrich plant the detonators and Theo prepare the vault. After we call the police, they'll waste hours trying to negotiate and then you can tear the building apart looking for this man. But until then, we do not alter the plan. I think that's got three all over it. Mm-hmm. There is a plan. We need to stick to it. And you will get what you're looking for. But we need to get through the plan first. He is solving a problem. When you solve a problem, you go your coping style. The three coping style is I'm shutting down my emotions. And for threes, it's I'm, in, I'm competently assessing the goal. Mm-hmm. What is the goal in this situation? And that's all he does. Yeah. You need to not alter the plan. Yeah. Future problem solver. Yep. McLean goes to the roof with Tony's walkie talkie. He starts yelling mayday. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a ton of, uh, John McLean. Yeah. We could, we could spend another podcast on John McLean, but I love this line. It's so good. <laughs> the lady who's this scene is hilarious. <laughs> we know an eight who works for dispatch and I yeah. just see her in this role saying this channel is reserved for emergencies only. Yeah. And, and go then, home, you drunk teenager. <laughs> <laughs> and then McLean yelling. The f- shit lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> just makes me laugh yeah. every time. Um, there's gunfire. They decide to send out a single cop to gunfire, which sounds like my neighborhood. <laughs> one, <laughs> one Sergeant Al Pal comes out introduction. Uh, McLean can't get Pal's attention. Pal is beginning to leave. And then there's a fight and McLean shoots some bad guys and then he decides, in order to get the police officer's attention, to throw a dead body out the window that falls down and hits the car. And then he starts shooting the car with a machine gun and yells out at the police officer, Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> that old scene, I just think, is a crack up. Yeah. Um, it's a great cartoon violence going on there. Yep. Um, now, notice Han's reaction. And this is, this again, just on point, I think, in terms of Enneagram. The cops arrive. They shut off all access to the building. And Hans, we catch in mid-speech, and he says, All of you relax. This is a matter of inconvenient timing. That's all. Police action was inevitable. And as it happens, necessary. So let them fumble about outside and stay calm. This is simply the beginning. There's a plan. Team, I got everything under control. Just do what you're here to do. We got this. He's a great coach. 
He's there is something about the three that that is the inspiring person on the team. Yeah. Who is able to speak into difficult situations and and engage their superpower. Yeah. I'm going to reframe this. Yep. Y'all, we always wanted the police to come. Yeah. Don't freak out. Where all of his guys are some of his henchmen are are clearly doofuses who who are very anxious that John McClane is telling information about what's going on in the building. Right. And Hans is just like, don't worry, everything's fine. We got this. <laughs> there is something, well, on the everything's fine, we got this, on the for the three, that mm-hmm. sounds like he is very much likewise engaging his stress number, yeah? Uh, the inconvenient timing, sure. The fact that his team is starting to freak out a little bit, probably a little bit, pulling that. He, I, I think he would disengage more if he was moving it more into the nine, though. Oh, that's good. Yeah. There's something about uh, really high achieving threes in sports mm-hmm. who I would type as threes who in crunch time are known as this person is Mr. Cool. Sure. I don't think they're normally nines. I think they're threes, and they go to that space. In stress. Sure. In cr- and there's a minute 30 left. 800 million people are watching everything you do. Mm-hmm. You have to not only control yourself, you need to make sure that everybody who's around you successfully moves from here to there. Yeah. Go. Sure. It feels like that's he's in that space. Yeah. Manage like the he's team. A, this is the sort of leader you actually want. Sure. You don't want the guy who shoots other people in the head, obviously, but you you want th- this is why Hans Gruber is a great character. You're like, no, this but he he is the sort of person who I would long to oversee my endeavors. Sure. CB crackles to life. Hans gets mad, grabs the CB says, I told you I want radio silence, and then he has a conversation, the first conversation with John McLean. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until further... Oh, I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on the bulletin board. But I figured since I... Wax Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call. <laughs> Clearly showing that he has done some homework. Yep. This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crasher. You are most troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? And Hans looks confused for a second because I think he talked himself into the security guard thing. I think that he assumed that he was dealing with someone who would be goaded by being called a security guard. Oh, what did, well, what did he expect then? So, so he, he, like, he clearly says that he doesn't think this was a security guard because of the way it was handled. Yeah. So he thinks this is a professional, like a real cop who's going to like cops have to follow rules, uh-huh. uh, or like like some kind of military professional who have to follow rules. Yeah. Like he assumed that calling this person a security guard would make them say, "No, I'm the police," or I like would would goad them into reacting and revealing too much. But then here's John McClain, the fly in the ointment, yeah, who messes up Hans's entire plan. 
He knows exactly there, how the FBI is going to react. He knows how the police are going to react. He has no idea what John McClane is going to do throughout this whole film. Is there another image thing going on here? Hans has been in control of his image the whole time and can make people believe whatever they want to about him, but he can't get the image of this guy in his head and, and that he, throws him off. And he doesn't know how to control it. Yeah. McLean, I never thought about this, but this is out of uh, this is a total strange reference. But this is out of The Hobbit. McLean says, "I'm just a, the fly in the ointment, Hans, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass. I'm the one who rides barrels. I am the one who goes unseen. Mm-hmm. I am the spider slayer." He Bilbo Baggins this in yeah. front of the dragon. Yeah, that's who McLean is here. He mm. knows there's there's a dragon here, and he knows it, and so he does exactly what Bilbo does. I think that's fun. Yeah. Um, Hans checks out of the conversation. He and he says, "Check on the others. I want you to see this guy, this guy, and that guy." And then he comes back on and he says, "Mr. Mystery Guest, are you still there?" And McLean says, "Yeah, I'm still here." Here's an interesting line. Unless you want to open the front door for me. And Han says, uh, no, I'm afraid not. Why not? You, this guy just killed a bunch of your guys. Go. Why not let him go and let your plan move forward? Because he has a whole plan. He does uh, have a plan. Oh, oh, unlocking the front doors would ruin his whole plan. This is the sixth side. He's loyal to Carl, who really wants to kill this guy. Mm, sure. The the man who is eventually going to kill all of the terrorists and foil all the plan just asked to leave the building. But Hans is loyal. Sure. Ah, come on. Yeah, That's like kind that. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. There's a lot of there, like, this is American culture's fault. Mm-hmm. There it is again. McLean says, was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, which is going to come up later. I really like those, <laughs> was it sequined shirts? Sequined. What is that? Sequin. You don't know what sequins are? Is that no. a, like, Western you. fashion? No, sequins are the the little flashy bits that they sew onto shirts that uh, have that make shirts sparkle. Ah, see, I don't wear those. That's true. <laughs> I could go get some <laughs> if you need to see examples. <laughs> I know you can. <laughs> well, Hans Gruber responds. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mister Cowboy? What, is, what does he say, TJ? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... (laughs) Not secure here, I don't think, anymore. But he's engaging a new adversary, which is different from the last adversary. But I would also like to point to the threeness that's on the table. Okay. Because threes reframe all of their situations into positive ones, where they are successful. And they do it in real time, not they're not quite as good at reframing as sevens are, but they he is already trying to change the situation for himself. Like he immediately mm. changes the plan a little bit and tells 
the his henchmen to go do these things. Like he's 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 still viewing himself as the one that's in control. Mm-hmm. And and choosing to view this person as someone that he will overcome. Uh, to piggyback on that, what I see is him trying to disparage and bring down the value of his interlocutor. Yeah. You're just part of this bankrupt culture. You're just another American mm-hmm. who X, Y, and Z. You know, you're just you just want to be John Wayne with your little gun and pew pew pew. Yeah, and he sees himself as superior. Yeah, I yeah. I shop at John Phillips London. Right. The people who Hans Gruber respects in this movie, he tries to introduce himself to and gain their name. Mm-hmm. He does it with Takagi. He does it with Holly Gennaro later. Never does it with the FBI guys. Right. But this is the interaction that's kind of off. Mm -hmm. He's controlling the situation by saying, I'm introducing myself in a professional manner, knowing who you are. There's his, I think that's his heart center. Like, I'm I'm understanding your feelings. I'm getting to know who you are so that I can get what I want. Mm -hmm. And here, he's getting nothing. Right. I'm I'm a fly in the ointment. Yep. Um, it's a good heart triad scene that comes up here, uh, where Gennaro comes in and says she has a pregnant woman, wants permission to take her into an office, and this shows Hans's understanding. He says, "No, but I'll have a sofa brought out to you. Good enough. Good enough. And unless you like it messy, I'd start bringing us in groups to the bathroom." Yes, you're right. It will be done. And then he says something real interesting. Mr. Takagi chose his people well, Mrs. And she says... Gennaro. Miss Gennaro. And he doesn't understand how to take this. He kind of has a confused look on his, in his mind. Hmm. I don't know if you got a thought on that one. Um, I have a couple of thoughts that are a little bit unrelated to each other. Um, the... Like, I like the idea of, like, this being a sort of heart center moment um, because he is acknowledging what other people need. Yeah. Uh, He's also trying to continue. It it is also still very much appearance. He's trying to continue to showcase himself as a civilized person. Ooh, yeah. I, I won't alter my plan, but I will give the pregnant woman a couch. I will allow people to go to the bathroom because I'm not an animal. Yeah. Um, but the the Miss Gennaro thing, I I would point off the top of my head. I would I would point more towards like this sort of a little bit of the feminist statement that's trying to be made there. Okay. Is it she's showcasing her power and and he could easily see this like her as like Takagi's administrative assistant. You know, she's she's Takagi's secretary and he doesn't know until later that she's actually. Oh, um, like there's a point where she he says, who put you in charge or something like that? Yeah, that was this scene. That's this scene. So um, she says you did when you killed my boss, which he's learning in real time that she is now the head of the company. Yeah, she's not Takagi's secretary. She's his number two. Right. 
And I think the Miss Gennaro thing is just sort of putting a pin on that for him in his mind. I don't know that he was expecting yeah. her to be as, as let's say, strong as she is. Right. Again, it's the radar for good people. It's not just his people who he's assembled to be mm-hmm. his team, mm-hmm. but also his adversaries. Yeah. New scene. Uh, the police get situated and decide to enter the building with Captain Dwayne Robinson. Uh, Hans says to everybody on the walkie-talkie, They'll be coming. Everyone get ready. Theo, you are the eyes now. Again, very calm, prepared, leans on his people. He understands this is what was going to happen. Theo has one of the great lines, I think, right here. I just love this. This spirit in this movie is so different from other action films. It's because it's a Christmas movie. I mean, it's... (laughs) Well, there's a ton of just the humorous side again of these terrorists who are just having a blast. Right. Right. All right. Listen up, guys. It was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring except the four assholes coming in the rear in standard two-by-two cover formation. He clearly understands military formations. Mm -hmm and yet is joking about it, and it's just showing you how secure they are in their plan. Right. The only thing they're not secure in is John McClane blowing stuff up. Right. Hans sees them. They're trying to unlock the door. He says, don't be impatient. Just wound them. (laughs) It's a great kind of villainous line. Yeah. The police director is just this, you know law enforcement asshole who, Which, who like, wants every excuse to bring out the military technology. Go isn't, ahead. isn't like, is that guy play the same character in every single thing that he's in? Like the, <laughs> the guy who him. thinks he's in charge, but nobody yeah. actually respects him except because they have to. That's probably, like, I've that, seen that is that guy. Things, and that's exactly who that is. That way he plays. Is. And I feel like that's every time, every other time I've seen them, that's who he's playing. <laughs> He goes, send in the car. Send in the car. Like, we're America. We know how to do this. We're just going to bring a tank in and run you over, and this will be done. <laughs> they they bring the, the car, and Theo says, Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we here, gentlemen? The police have themselves an RV. And, of course, the henchmen are prepared. They get this this whole rocket system they break a window they shoot a rocket at the the tank blow it up oh my god the quarterback is toast all right right, and this is where the villainous side of hans comes in again he's secure he has power he has his men in place hit it again and john mcclain yells onto the walkie-talkie hans you made your point let them pull back and hans says thank you mr cowboy i'll take it under advisement hit it again and diminishing his value, anything that you see there, I, I just see security there. Yeah, and like like he's, we're talking about, he's very comfortable, but he's already established that he's it's it's not because he just plain wants to kill. Like there are people that are totally comfortable killing people because they just plain want to kill. That is not this guy's mo, which means that he is totally comfortable hitting that thing again because he understands what kind of message it sends. Yeah. It's entirely about message. Yeah. I want them to have a belief about me. Yep. 
it's not just about strength, but it's building on, I want them to see me as terrorists who are going to blow up the top of the tower in the future. Right. And right now, I want them to be terrified to come into the building because I need time to unlock those vaults. Right. But it's all about message. And, like, he, as we'll see later, he needs the FBI to show up and uh-huh. to follow the terrorist playbook. Uh-huh. He needs things to he needs things to progress in a certain oh, way. Yeah, it needs to go from a city level uh, engagement to something that's federal. Yeah, because they will come in and do exactly what he wants them to. Yep, that's exactly right. That's good. McLean gets mad, sends some C four down the elevator shaft, kills the henchman. Hans is gonna get mad about this because he was strong seen as strong and then all of a sudden more of his guys are getting blown up and it's frustrating his plans he has one of his henchmen run in and say the police are using heavy artillery on us you idiot it's not the police it's him secure gets the message across everything's going to plan with the exception of the fact that there just keep being these beats of things going badly Right. Well, and I think that I also think like coming back to that image thing, like he has orchestrated a plan that causes the FBI to react in a certain way. If John McClane is causing gigantic explosions well before the plan calls for gigantic explosions, then the FBI might do something different. Uh, there's a clock... Yeah. In his head, this needs to take place at yep. these times. Yep. Mm, I like that. One of the things that I liked, uh, I heard a commentary. This is, again, a John McLean observation. But, you know, normally the, the hero sets off the bomb in the car, walks away, bomb explodes behind him. His hair flops in the wind slightly, and he just looks like a badass as he walks towards the camera. Yeah. In this situation, John McLean used way too much <laughs> <laughs> you know, bomb fuel. Yeah. And the fire goes up the elevator shaft and almost takes him out. Yeah. And so New York City beat cop. Yeah. <laughs> so, threw C4 down an elevator shaft and had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> it just shows you the type of hero this is. Mm-hmm. That the, like there's real vulnerability here. <laughs> but he's doing his best. Yeah. Which actually sets up something at the end. There's a great dark moment when he tells the story about, uh, he hears Al Powell's story about shooting the kid. And then he tells Pal, Hey, I want you to tell my wife something because I don't think I'm going to make it. And then he says, there was something on the roof. I need to go check out the thing on the roof. And it's a very foreshadowing things. He might die now kind of image, but you've set up how he's, he might be a, he has real weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Yep. And that's just good screenwriting. And it's also like, like we're really, really used to the, the hero who knows way too much about all kinds of different things. Yeah. So looking back on this film, it's like, it, it totally fits, but like this thinking about this happening in 1988, a New York city regular cop, definitely doesn't know all of these things. So the fact that he is getting through this whole scenario and all of it's without shoes, it's like, this is a really big deal. 
<laughs> he knows enough. Yeah. The, apparently, the the teaser trailer for this movie in Japan, mm-hmm. they didn't know they, they didn't have a good translation for Die Hard. Yeah. So they called it the hero with no shoes. In the sub, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the subtitle was "Why doesn't he have shoes?" Awesome. <laughs> That's how they sold the movie. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, folks. So we thought that Alan Rickman did such a spectacular job that we had a lot to say about his performance in this movie. So we're going to pause here, and we're going to pick up next time with the rest of Die Hard and all of the other villains that we thought were threes. So tune in next time for the exciting conclusion of this episode. Hey, it would mean the world to us. If you pause, take two seconds and write us a brief review and give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. But the best thing you can do is share this episode with somebody you love. If you dig these pop culture deep dives, you can help us select upcoming movies and hear more on our Patreon page. Our music is by The Collection and by Tim Coons. And that's it, man. TJ. You got anything else? I do not. He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. And I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are, and you're going to set the world on fire. Morning will come burning.